Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she won an Oscar for her work in Mighty Aphrodite, but she also speaks French and Mandarin Chinese fluently. I mean, come on. This woman is remarkable. Her activism, her talent, her heart. Welcome Mira Sorvino to the podcast. A-okay. I'm so thrilled that you're here and that you're home and safe. Um, where are you right now? I'm I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm in California. I'm in SoCal in Los Angeles County. So first of all, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I have to start with Hollywood because you are, I just talked to Patty Lapone uh, like three days ago. We did one of these and um and we, it's just such a love fest about you and that cast and what an incredible series. And I would love to know if my experience of watching it, which was pure bliss, was uh, your experience of doing it. Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was like a love fest, a joy fest. I literally actually cried on the first day, uh, tears of joy, because I was so happy to be there. Like the quality, the level of everyone working there from the biggest star to the, you know, the, the crew member that you don't interact with as much, like every single person there was completely top of their game, amazingly talented, amazingly committed, and also super positive and enthusiastic. So there was this real feeling of everybody was so happy to be there working for Ryan Murphy on such a high quality piece of material. But also when you looked around, like my first day was um, a scene within a scene. It was when we were filming one of the two scenes from the fake movie, Mr. Cooper's Widow. And so mm-hmm. we were on a soundstage, on a soundstage, like it was a film right. within a film. And I looked around and you saw all the extras dressed as period hair and makeup people or period cameramen. And then they had these giant, authentic old cameras, giant, authentic lights. Um, and it was just really... I felt like I was there. I felt like I was back in the forties and I was like, I I just, I actually started crying about how happy I was to be doing it. And as the show went on, I only became happier because my role really developed some really beautiful depth to her as well as comedic scenes. So um, I was just very, very happy and very honored to be able to work with other great actors such as Patti LuPone and Holland Taylor and Rob Reiner and all the fantastic young cast, you know, Laura Harrier and Jake Picking and, and getting to work with Jim Parsons and, and, and you know, everybody, Darren Chris, they were all 
they're all really amazing. So, um, and, and uh, you know, Michelle Krusiak is Anna Mae Wong. There was just a specialness to this cast and to the story we were telling, I think. Well, how much did you, when you say sort of how your character developed, and it's funny, also when you say Holland Taylor, I think that's the most delightful performance I've ever seen in my life. There's like this naturalness and the smile that she has the entire time. The three of you together was just the most incredible trifecta of talent and such different kinds of um, personalities. It was really a triumph. Uh, and that's just one of the amazing, many amazing scenes that you did. But I'm curious, like when this project came your way, uh, did you know how the character was going to develop throughout the series? Were you involved in conversations with Ryan Murphy about that? Uh, I didn't know how she was going to develop when I was first offered it. I just knew that it was a um, uh, a kind of a Lana Turner-ish character who, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and that was what, that's what I knew. I didn't, I didn't know anything about what her plot line was going to be. But as soon as I heard that and I heard Ryan Murphy, I was like, sign me up, sight unseen. Like I didn't need to see a script. That was, I was, I was down for it. And um, the scripts were kind of being written as we went along. I don't think they uh, were all finished when I signed on. Right. And so I discovered things about the character as I would get the new scripts. Um, and you know, that scene in the commissary was so beautiful. That's my favorite of my scenes in the show. Um, and I, I love the other Patty Lapone commissary scene as well, but this one has more redemption and, and hope in it. You know, the other one, the other one, she, she forgives me and that's amazing. Like her generosity of spirits, uh, spirit is, is sort of astounding that she forgives me for having the affair with her husband. Um, but saying that she'd be a hypocrite if she didn't, because she's been having all these multiple affairs. I mean, clearly they're, they had a marriage disconnect for a very long time, but, um, but in the commissary scene where I come to ask if I, I've gotten a role in Meg and I hear that I haven't, I think all hope is lost. I think I'm being, you know, sent out to pasture now that they're going to end my contract, that, that, that coup de grace that didn't happen in the first scene was going to happen now that she's going to decide, I don't want this woman around me uh, and she's of no use to us anymore. And instead they do this incredibly generous hand up um, sisterhood gift to me. You know, they, they give me this gift of a role that is not just casting me by the type that I've, uh, that I have subsisted on for years sort of playing this kind of B movie blonde um, leading lady. Instead, she's a real human being with all this heart and complexity who helped liberate the camps at Auschwitz was one of the first, you know, war fo- female war photographers to be there. Um, and my character's just blown away that I would be seen for my merit and my talent and that these two women would be the one to do it. And I just felt like when I looked at them across the table, that they were like my angels. And in a few of the takes, I said that to them. I said, you're my angels. You know, is this a dream? You know, could this really be true? Um, so it was very emotional for me to play it. And at the same time, she's still kind of quirky. You know, she's still got her weird little thing. Like, like when, yes. I, when I said, when I, when I threatened to kill myself, basically, you know, she's like, when I, she says, what do you want? When I said, what do you want me to say that I'll kill myself? You know, cause clearly she's considering that. And it's just sort of a slightly offbeat person who would actually admit that out loud. But, exactly. Um, exactly. No. 
it's there's so many moments like that in the show and I wondered um but I did wonder if there was room for improvisation uh there was there was especially in the more comedic scenes um there was definitely room to play and Janet Mock directed me in the scene at um the Rock Hudson screen test and also the scene uh with Rob Reiner and uh, she definitely encouraged me to sort of take over uh, moments with whatever kind of came into my head. And she, she said, you, you've got us cracking up at the, you know, we're dying over there at the monitors. Keep, keep it coming. You know, so I would throw in these little improv lines like a tall drink of water for a tall drink of water when he has the drink of water. Because she's always <laughs> trying to kind of get herself noticed. But she honestly like, you know, she, you know, she just says these things that kind of come into her head and she is genuinely a nice person. Like she does actually care for these younger actors and she's trying to be encouraging, but she's also flirtatious. She's also trying to kind of always get a little bit of that spotlight herself. So she does these absurd things. Like when I'm like, this is the Hollywood side, you know, I'm setting up the whole thing. And originally, you know, I just had a few off screen lines to feed him, but instead I kind of, I tried to engage with him and, you know, just make it that, you know, maybe this is sort of my screen test too. Yeah. Like, like they could possibly decide that maybe I could play Meg. Maybe yeah, so. you could. But by the way, you do look amazing. They took. I mean, you're such a gorgeous woman. But I feel like they took such great care of all the actresses. Um, everyone's just lit so beautifully and costumed so beautifully. It just seems like a, a dream. All of it. Um, you are. There's nothing better than that feeling when like crew members come up to you and tell you how funny you are or the idea that Video Village is loving what you're doing. It's such a wonderful way to work and feel like you can keep going. Um, (laughs) Is that something that is improv, something that you're, some people hate it and some people love it. So is that your something? I love improv. I I totally love improv. That's, that's, that's my that's my happy place. I love it when I can just listen to my instincts and be totally unfettered and unplanned. Like I clearly work, I work very hard preparing the scene and then I try and let go of all the preparation when I go into it and just let it kick into autopilot. And once it kicks into autopilot, then there's the space for happy surprises because then you're like, you're riding the crest of the scene. Like you're in the ocean, you're on a very specific wave and each take is different. And sometimes the ocean will throw little things at you, like a dolphin will appear next to you, or you'll step on a crab or you know, something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that those things happen on camera makes it feel so much more real. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, and I think the audience feels that spontaneity. So uh, that's, that's my favorite. My favorite kind of acting is when it's not too rigidly constricted by just adhering to the plan, but instead exploring the, you know, the, uh, less taken path, I guess. And can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you were told that, you know, sort of loosely based on Lana Turner, it's always exciting when there's some source material um, to begin with. So how much time did you have between offer and principal photography? Was there any rehearsal? Did Ryan Murphy gather everyone to kind of create a family before shooting began? Because it really feels that way to the viewer. Can you kind of walk me through the whole process a little bit? Well, I, I'm not sure that my character, look, I don't, I don't actually know, but my character's Mm -hmm. not in the first episode. So I'm not sure if she became an idea post the first episode that they wanted to have this character running through. Got Um, it. 
So he may have done that with the rest of them. He directed the first episode and that's the only one he directed. So I sadly did not get to be directed by him, but I, I had a wonderful interaction with him on one of the episodes when he came to visit. But um, yeah, he may have done that. I know that some of them also knew each other from other projects of his. Obviously he, he has a sort of a, a company in a way that moves from some of his projects to the others. Um, <clears throat> but there is a, a warmth and a geniality that comes from the top, I think, because all of the people that work for him feel his loyalty and are so grateful to be working on the fantastic material he's providing them with, that there is this family-like atmosphere and this happiness and nobody's negative, nobody's bitching, nobody's like the the uh, hair and makeup trailer is not a negative place. It's a mm -hmm. super positive place. You know, sometimes hair and makeup trailers could be like the center of, it's like complaint central. And that is not at all. It's the ab absolute opposite on this one. Um, but in terms of the Lana Turner, that was what was said to me and my reps before we got it. And so I started watching all of these Lana Turner movies. And I think I had a couple of weeks. I think I had a couple of weeks before my first shoot day. Um, and I just watched her and watched her movements and watched her mannerisms and her vocal patterning. Um, and I kind of thought I was like, oh, okay, you know, the scandals of her life, like the Johnny Stompanato story, is that going to be in there? And instead, she really is not Lana Turner. She just is a type like Lana Turner, you know, like a Veronica Lake, like, you know, the sort of the blonde bombshell staple of that era. But I feel like she's different than Lana in that when I learned more about Lana and I watched all these documentaries and read her autobiography, read her daughter's autobiography, um, I felt that Lana is the ultimate Hollywood survivor. And I would say that Jean Crandall, my character, is a little bit more soft and a little bit less of a ruthless winner. Like, I feel like Lana always ended up on top, no matter the situation. She would always be able to right the ship and ride like scandal or negative publicity and turn it into um, an asset for herself. Whereas my character is a little bit less crafty. You know, she's more, she's more sort of innocent. And there, there's a line that used to be in the story that is no longer there, but it really informed how I played her. It was when they were discussing who do we have in-house as talent that we could, you know, cast to play in Meg. And you, you know, and then in the next moment you see me walking into the commissary in the white dress with Holland and, and Patty, but then you realize that they're going to give it to Anna Mai Wong instead. But when they talk about Jean, they, they used to have a line in that scene when they're discussing casting where they said, oh, I don't think Jean is right for, for this. There's just something so hopeful about her. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the character was a sort of a darker character. Yeah. And that hopeful quality is really what is Jean's essence in a way. Like, I feel like Jean is, is almost a creature that has been born and bred to be the hopeful, happy endingness that is projected by old movies. I think she's forgotten how she used to talk. I don't, you know, she's so thoroughly mid-Atlantic that even in her... Yeah. In, in her daily life, that's how she speaks. And I think that she just has, it's almost like fade into the sunset is what you sort of see in her eyes. Like, you know, just right around the corner, there's that happy ending, you know, we'll get there, we will. You know, she just has that that wish. And yet this desperate fear that 
that her time is up and she's not going to be relevant anymore or have love, have a kind of a life that she can be proud of. And, and I think she starts to take steps to be a more self-directed, more kind of proactive person rather than a, a subject of other people's behavior. When she comes to talk to Patty, when she yeah. admits her affair, when she apologizes for her part in, in, um, you know, Ace's uh, downfall. <laughs> yes. Um, literally. But, yes, literally. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that she's, uh, you know, she's bought into that American dream painted by the movies, but I think she's starting to wake up from it, but still, you know, then she, she actually is given an earned happy ending, which is crazy because that's not the way the old movies were. The old movies were like sort of twists of fate that people got lucky and had the prince sweep them off to the castle. This was because she was honest and because the other women were fair and because they wanted to do things differently that they decided to create more of a meritocracy in which her long standing hard work and talent would finally allow her to be promoted into a, a really great career rather than the fair to Midland one she had. Um, so these are the kind of happy endings you see all over this story where because people are honest and they're willing to kind of risk everything, they're, will, they're willing to just speak their truths and live by what's really going on in their hearts and minds rather than the status quo, rather than obeying the Hayes Code or hiding their homosexuality or accepting racism. Um, instead, they're bold, they're courageous, and most of them end up, you know, winning the day. And it's so beautiful and it is earned. And that's, that's what I love about Hollywood. It's an earned happy ending, which shows you that if people would actually behave by what they know is right in their hearts and they know is fair, the world would be a hell of a lot better place and many more people would be happy. You have this uncanny ability to create very subtle distinctions, but very different voices, literal voices for your characters. Were you an amazing um, mimic as a kid growing up? Like where did this ear that you have that is so brilliant for the specificity of your character's way of speaking, where did that come from? Um, I have to say that I think it's genetic because my brother, sister, and I, and my father can all do impersonations of people rather naturally. Like when we tell stories, we always do the voice of the person who's involved in the story. Like we'll always just channel them. And that's just something I think that is innate to us. And I don't know why, um, but I think it's something sort of, I also have really good pitch. So I think it's just sort of an ear brain thing. Um, like I, I think, you know, it's my sister, my sister can actually pick a song. My sister, Amanda Sorvino can pick a song off of the radio and play it. She could do that from the time that she was seven on the piano. And she ended up going to Manhattan school of music at 12. She was like a child prodigy composer and pianist. Um, so that's just something that, that we can do. Um, mm -hmm. But then I work really, really hard at crafting the characters specifically um, you know, I, I, I try and find their voice as part of my search for who they are because every person speaks differently. Right. Um, and so I, I really try and make each person unique and not the same and, you know, just have, have their own authentic voice. 
And once I found the voice, I've usually sort of found the character. I mean, it goes along with the walk and the, you know, just, just the general, the general feeling inside myself, but yeah. So that's the way Jean speaks. And, you know, even though I did Marilyn Monroe, um, you know, back in the nineties uh, in Norma Jean and Marilyn for HBO alongside Ashley Judd, because we played two halves of Marilyn. It's a very cool psycho kitty movie. <laughs> um, so I was playing another <clears throat> sort of silver screen tragic blonde, but, um, but she spoke like Marilyn, you know, so she, she had a totally different patois, even though you could look at the two characters and say, well, visually they're kind of similar. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but when you like, when I think back to obviously the film that made you an international star, um, at a very young age and an Oscar winner, uh, in Mighty Aphrodite, the character of Linda Ash was also like a great departure from the mirror Sorvino that we see in the world when you are yourself and the confidence, you know, you were a very young actress at the time already taking on like deep character work on film where you can't get away with anything fakey. You know what I mean? Like it has to be 100%. So is that something that like you always had the confidence to bring onto a set? Is that something for that movie that you worked on with the director for Romy and Michelle? Did you and, and Lisa Kudrow work on that stuff together? Or do you just, were you someone with this innate or inherent confidence to go, I, I'm going to play with this and I'm going to bring it in fully formed and show the director with confidence? Well, I was asked by the director, you know, and, and, you know, I'm just going to say like, I, you know, we all, know what's gone on with Woody Allen. And, and I have since changed my, you know, sort of my, my stance on, I, I do believe that he molested his daughter. So I have to put that out there in the beginning. And I wrote an apology letter to, to Dylan Farrow um, that I published, but, um, and we have since become friends. Um, but, uh, but it was an extraordinary opportunity. He is a genius. There's no questioning any of that. Um, and in my first meeting with him, uh, he said, I might want you to work on a bit of a voice because not only is she cheap, but she's stupid. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I kind of, and he said, not Southern, not Californian. So I just, I sort of wor- started working on different voices and I had a friend whose mother had a very, very high voice. She spoke in a super high register, almost like Minnie Mouse. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my grandmother always had this sort of gravel in her voice, almost like a flamenco singer, you know, has that, uh, you know, that there's always that sort of raspiness. And I tried just doing the Minnie Mouse voice, but it just seemed to be lacking a little, a little something. And then I tried doing a gravelly high voice together. And that really worked well. So it was very strange because I'm like speaking in a falsetto, but I'm speaking at the same like note as I would in my normal voice. So if I change it to this, I can speak, I can speak down at that level. Like, like I'm speaking at that same note you hear, but, but it's like a different, I'm inverting the way I'm using my vocal cords and I'm like letting them sit on there and it's sort of Muppety. Um, and, and that just makes for, it makes her sort of ridiculous no matter what she says. And it kind of makes reading the cereal box funny. So uh, 
you know, just, yeah. uh, so, and, but I, but I was very nervous about it. It was definitely, <clears throat> definitely something I was very apprehensive about because it was an extreme kind of choice. And I actually would walk around New York city in character. I would put on high heels and put my hair in like a top ponytail and a fluffy sweater. And I would go try and practice being her walking my dog. And then I took this little weekend trip as her to Philadelphia where I spoke to college kids on the train. And then I bought, um, I, I bought a camera lens in character and negotiated with them, like told them what the blue book value was. And I went to an ice cream store and, and I discovered things about her personality by playing her in person because people would really respond very well to when she would like burst out laughing, mm-hmm. which would ha like, and that, that's sort of something my sister used to do in a way. Like I've picked up a lot of things from my sister's mannerisms actually over the years, but my sister used to go ha ha. And, and so I would, take that, ah, ah, you know, just, just kind of translate into her. But then Romy is based on my sister's voice as a teenager. Cause she and her friend Murph used to have this like sort of, Hey Murph, how are you doing? <laughs> and, and Romy was a kind of a version of that, but like a little bit lower, like a little bit more masculine. Cause I always felt like if, if there were to be genders assigned to the couple of Romy and Michelle, Romy was the man of the relationship or the butch, you know, right. she's, yes. she's just more of a guy. Yes. And, uh, you know, so, so, but I, I just, you know, I work on these things and then, and then I bring them to the set and I did not try it out for Lisa beforehand and Romy and Michelle, like I just came with the cake already baked, you know, and, and there was a certain point at which during Mighty Aphrodite, I was told by the director that maybe, um, maybe I should have tried other voices in the beginning. And I was like, are you saying that you want me to do a different voice? Cause that's fine. I can do a different voice. I just want you to know it will be a different person. Yeah. And he said, well, it's just that, you know, when we did Bullets Over Broadway, Diane Weist, you know, did like a week and a half with one voice and then we switched it to this other voice and that's the voice she used and it was so successful. And I said, well, do you want me to change it? And he said, no, no, I was just thinking out loud. And I said, because it will be a different person, but I'm fine. I'm fine to change it. If you want a different character, I'll change it. And he said, oh, I thought it was more like a put on thing, like sort of rich little, like, you know, like an impersonation. I was like, no, this is this is the way this character speaks. But I'm happy to change it if you want. He was like, no, that's fine. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be fired. (laughs) It was so strange because we had already shot five or six weeks by that point. That's awful. That's awful. (laughs) That's awful. Uh, among other awful things, that's awful. So did you spend the rest of the film like feeling insecure or did you just go, you know what, this is what I'm doing. And if I get yeah. fired, was, I get fired? Yeah. Well, well, the thing is that he he had it in his budget to reshoot the entire movie. And he told me that. Um, so he, he I, I was like, well, we've already spent five weeks shooting this voice, I said to him. And he said, Oh, that's nothing. I could reshoot the whole. I have it in my budget to reshoot the whole thing if I want. I reshot all of like. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was Crimes and Misdemeanors or Autumn Leaves or I, I don't know. One of the ones that he did, he had completely shot again with mm. like a different cast um, or some some of a different cast. And he had already fired a couple of people on our show. Um, one role had been already recast twice and uh, he had also, or three times, we were on our third person playing that character and uh, at a certain point, like it, it was an actress that I super respected who lost the role in, when she was the second, the second replacement. And um, that, I was really shocked. So I definitely felt like a lack of job security for sure. But, you know, you have to just ignore that and just power on and just 
go for the big, bold choice artistically. I mean, the worst that can happen is you're fired, but the best that can happen is that you came up with something really unique that no one but you could have come up with and, and you're sticking to your guns, you know, so. Well, and I had, I had offered to change it. You know, I had, I was completely, yeah. I was like, tell me how high you want me to jump. I'm fine. Whatever you want me to do, I'm completely directable. It's just that this was the cake that I baked for you. And if you want a different cake, if you want chocolate instead of vanilla, that's fine. We'll do that. Well, one of the things I've watched and shown my husband and actually sent to people, because I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's sort of the silver lining of this story that is so um, fraught with so many different things, except an extraordinary performance from you is in your Oscar speech. The thing that has made me cry on a loop is your dad's face when you talk about him. And it's really one of the most extraordinary human moments that's televised. Luckily the camera was on him at that moment too. Um, And I can only imagine like, he's not my dad. I always wished he were my dad, but he was your dad. Um, He just seems like the dad you want to have as a dad. When you talk about sort of how you approach things, I thought, yeah, like with a parent like that, Maybe you feel a certain kind of liberty to make choices and fly because it seems like that, I don't know, I may be reading a lot into it, but that just really moved me and seemed like you had a real foundation and an ally at home who was of a certain age and maybe the same age as many of these directors, but who didn't act like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, dad, that, that was, I I think I've talked about this in, in, in print somewhere recently, but you know, when I was, uh, when I was doing quiz show, which I did before Mighty Aphrodite by like a mm-hmm. year, year and a year and a few months before it with Robert Redford, Redford, it was my first famous director. And, um, well, actually I'd worked with Susan Seidelman before that, but, um, you know, he obviously Robert Redford is huge, right? Yeah. So it was a very big deal to get cast in that. And the first day I was shooting this scene with Rob Morrow and I was coming from the world of independent film, right? So I had done a few independent films and we were always using short ends. This is when people were still using film in cans and the productions would buy these, you know, leftover uh, coils of film because they were cheaper than buying the big ones. You know, they were the sort of cast offs of other people who had not finished the film, right? So we'd be shooting short ends. So we'd have very little film to shoot. So you really would only have one to three takes to do it. The maximum would ever be five, right? Um, And now all of a sudden I was on this big budget movie set. Not that I was paid hardly anything for it, but it was a huge movie. (laughs) But other people were. Yeah, other people were. I was very lucky just to be at the table. I don't don't begrudge them my my tiny salary. Yes, early Um, on. And uh, I I was... uh, I was really nervous because Redford would shoot, you know, 12 to 20 takes per angle. And I just felt like, oh my God, I'm not getting it right. I'm not giving him what he wants. And the casting director was there that day. She was there on set watching. And I was thinking, oh wow, oh wow, they're going to call the other girl. Because, you know, it's always down to like two people and then you get it or you don't, right? You know, or it could be down to three people, but mm-hmm. usually when you're being cast in something, oh, you're in the mix, they tell you. And then it's yeah. like, well, between you and one other person or two other people. So I, I knew who the other person was and she had done more work than I had. And 
I was like, oh no, they're going to call her and say they made a mistake. Would she come in and play it? And I'm going to be fired. Mm. And I went home and I was super despondent. And then my dad said to me, Mira, 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 you know, what's the worst that could happen? You could be fired. Everyone gets fired at some point in their career. Um, you know, I've been fired. It happens to the best of us. Uh, but you have to go in and make a bold artistic choice. Go in and take your best shot at, you know, a big swing. You'll never be able to soar without taking the risk of falling. Like you, you have to take a big artistic leap. If you don't allow yourself the courage to fail, you will never soar. I think that's how he put it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and, and just, he said, you know, just take that big swing at it. Just say, fuck it. <laughs> that's yeah. what he said. Just say, fuck it. And, uh, you know, I was like a 23, four year old actress. And, and, you know, that was a big encouragement to me. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to go in there tomorrow. I'm going to do my best. And if it's not good enough, it's what I believed in. And I'm going to go in with the courage of my convictions. And um, I didn't get fired. And it ended up being a really important movie for me to get other movies and people discovering me. And, and, uh, and I was really, really happy to have learned that because that has, that has really done well for me my entire life, that attitude because it can be really scary to try something different, try something bizarre or out there or not necessarily what is it instantly on the page. Like it's what, it's what your mind and your heart tell you should be on the page. It's like, it's generated by the, by the suggestion of what you read in the words, but you're taking it to the next level of your own personal interpretation. And that's either going to work or it's not. But if you've already got the role, then you know, then just make it your own. Just really take it and run with it. And don't be afraid of failing because otherwise you'll never fly. So that that's that was one of the best pieces of, of advice I've ever had. I was thinking of, you know, all the different kinds of parts you've done from Romy and Michelle's high school reunion and then Summer of Sam, which I saw again recently, which oh, is, uh, yeah, like such an incredible movie. And, you know, Spike Lee has been really a constant director for generations now who keeps kind of reinventing himself as well. Yeah. But that really is, I think, one of the best things. Um, and, and you are so, again, like so free and deeply moving and in some very intense situations in that film. And I wonder, um, when you're asking people to be violent and kind of reach into parts of themselves that can be ugly, um, how does Spike Lee kind of create an environment where people feel really safe to go to all the places they need to go to? And on a set with, you know, all sorts of people who are both, you know, who are the victims of these really dark statements and, and behavior. Um, how does everyone feel safe, whether they're playing the kind of abuser or the abusee in a, in a film like that? Um, well, I mean, in, you know, uh, we, we did a lot of rehearsal for, for this, you know, and I'm fine either way, rehearsal or no rehearsal. Like Woody rehearses on film. He doesn't mm -hmm. do any rehearsal, really. I mean, maybe a blocking rehearsal. That's it. Um, but he, I think is of the mind, maybe I shouldn't read into it, but that, you know, you might lose something organic if you, 
kind of rehash it too much. Right. And then Spike <clears throat> um, was kind of workshopping the script. So we would, um, and the script was actually uh, co-written by, um, by Michael Imperioli, who is in the film. Um, but Michael is a friend of mine and we had done another movie called Sweet Nothing. Of course. Um, yes, so, I love that movie. So he and Victor Coliccio had written the original script and then Spike came on and joined it and did a rewrite. Um, but he's so organic. Uh, so, so it became like a co, uh, you know, a joint, jointly written script between Spike and Michael and Victor. But he would do these rehearsals with the cast and he would have us improv in the middle of the scenes. And then he would start writing down stuff that we would say in the improvs and put them on the page. Um, but John Leguizamo, who had been in my acting class with the great one him and who has passed due to COVID and I, I just devastated. He's the one person I know that has died. And oh, I just, I'm so sorry. I was just wrecked. He was the most amazing man, the most amazing artistic father figure to so many of us in New York, whether actors or writers or directors. He started the American Place Theater. He was 97 years old and had been healthy all this time. And oh. this is the thing that felt this great, this great giant of a man. He was incredible, most loving, brilliant person. Like I will, I will never forget everything he, he has done for me and did for me. But um, anyway, John Leguizamo and I were together in his acting class and um, uh, we knew each other already. It was where he was, I think he was workshopping Spicarama Mm -hmm. um, in, in class, which was so cool. That was one of the great things about the classes that writers and directors would workshop the work that they had in progress in the classroom. So you got to see other people's creative processes going on, not just your own acting interpretation of things like people be bringing fresh material that they were generating. And it was amazing. But, um, so John and I knew each other and then we had to learn all the dance sequences together. The, the, um, hustle uh -huh. uh, that we did. And so we worked for like a month together. Um, and we worked with, uh, you know, a former dance teacher of mine. And then we worked with the choreographer and because we worked together for about a month, we became really sort of comfortable with each other. And so when we got to the scenes that were really sort of scary, like the scene in the car where like, the cemetery He's, scene? Yes, the yeah. cemetery scene. And I think Spike told him, um, spit in her face. And then because we trusted each other, then like I, I think that that's when I like slap him back. And we trusted each other enough that like we couldn't really go wrong. Like we, we knew that whatever happened, it would never cross a line into actual danger for the other one. And he had, Spike had two cameras going that whole time in the cemetery scene. Alan Kuros, the DP was incredible. And there were always, there were two cameras in that scene. So you had it from both sides. So if, if, if the action only happened in one take, like the slap and spit, mm -hmm. um, it was all caught. You had both sides of it. So you, you didn't have to match anything on the editing room right. process, you know? Right. Um, and you're not so doing coverage. It's just all happening in real time. Yeah. It's, and, and just like, or the don't leave me this way scene, you know, the, when he plays that music over the breakup scene where we're kind of going through the house and um, 
it was all it was all handheld like single camera steady cam uh, just following us around so the 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 way that he covers things with this fluidity and this not no need for perfect continuity and repeatability of precise moments that really makes it so real um and but it was because John and I trusted each other and that's partially because of the the work in advance that Spike had us do, but it was also just because John is a great guy. Like, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure that I could have been that trusting with somebody else. I'm not sure. In in your over, I think you've done, I mean, at least 65 films, maybe more, and maybe yeah, that many so. TV shows as well, which is just incredible. Um, is there a part that you feel like, okay, when you watch this movie, this is the most like me, no, I don't think so. I, I, I've never really played myself. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever actually played myself. Um, all of them are parts of me. All of them are me amplified. Like, it's it's just a different note on my piano. Yeah. But there's never been a character that's really like me or Sorvino. I don't think so. Um, you know, when you talked earlier about you know, I can't not talk about Mighty Aphrodite without talking about how I feel now. I'm curious, because this is a question everyone grapples with right now. What do we do with all the incredible work made by people who have turned out to be bad people, but the work itself stands on its own as a great piece of work, whether it's an author, you know, or a director, um, you know, you found out your favorite book is written by an anti-Semite and your favorite movie is written by a pedophile, like all the things that are coming to light. Um, how do you speak to that? Or what are your, what's your thought about that? I do think that the lens of time is helpful. I think that if we're looking at people in other centuries or the early part of the 20th century, we can separate the the artist from the art a little bit more and maybe just be like, well, they were a POS person, but wow, the music is beautiful. Or, you know, yeah. I think when it's a current living artist, then it becomes much more complex because if you continue to, you know, imbibe whatever they put out, then you're supporting them. So I, I think that there needs to be a censure And especially when people are unrepentant, especially when people have no idea that what they've done really is heinous and they, they just justify it or deny it. I think if we saw more restorative justice from perpetrators or people who express things that were really wrong, um, I think it's easier to give them a way back, but I just don't see that happening a lot yet. I haven't really seen people come forward you know, you know, like I, I think that the truth and reconciliation concept from South Africa, you know, um, the idea that as a society, they need to live together. So apologies need to be made, reparations need to be made, and then there needs to be a, a side-by-side moving forward into the future together, kind of healing wounds I think that could be said for, you know, I mean, look, a rapist, you're never going to be able to forgive them. Um, There are more minor infractions, you know, people who are not 
out and out criminals, but people who have terrible attitudes or have done bad things that have hurt people or have excluded people, have prevented them from having a livelihood based on whatever bias or cruelty is in their nature. It would be great to see maybe even the companies that were supporting some of these people create an active uh, reparation program. But this yeah. is just sort of like the, the United States has not made reparation for slavery, has not made reparation for the genocide of the Native American peoples. Uh, so I, I don't know that as a culture we've gotten there yet, but I think that that would really be the next step towards real healing, towards real um, somehow reintegration of of this history. But yeah, I, I am not the one to say whether you should still enjoy a movie or a song created by a person who has done something really bad. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm too personally connected to these things to be a good, you know, a good arbiter of that. Right. I get it. Um, well, I feel like for so many of us, you have been so vocal and willing to be front and center in so many issues that have been helping move not just our industry forward, but ways in which, you know, your voices have been really effective in bringing out all kinds of behavior in all sorts of industry all over the world. And it's rare that you get to say thank you in person to someone who's meant so much to you as a leader and um, a true activist. So on so many levels and for so many issues, whether it's sex trafficking or, or, you know, specifically things that have gone on in Hollywood, um, you're just, your heart and soul uh, are so beautiful and you're, you know, Everyone knows this about you. You're one of these actresses who also went to Harvard and and speaks Chinese and and you know French fluently. I mean, there's so many things that you've accomplished. Um, it's kind of thrilling to imagine what's ahead. Um, uh-huh. And I'm wondering, do you know what your next project? We are all trying to figure out, and I'm sure you've been having these conversations too. Like, what does filming look like in the future? And have you been privy to any conversations about how people are thinking about? when we get the the privilege of going back to work, what that might look like? I do not know. You know, I think SAG is coming up with guidelines. Um, I, everybody's nervous. You know, this is a, a new frontier. Um, just the, And we still don't understand enough about this virus to really understand how it's transmitted. You know, mm-hmm. I, I read something where a doctor took a, a plane flight and he had a mask on and gloves on the whole time and he still contracted it. And that was the only time he'd been in the outside world. And he felt like he got it through his eyes. So, mm. you know, we, we really just don't know, but um, no, I don't know what my next project is going to be, except that I know that I am going to do an episode of Lisa Kudrow's Who Do You Think You Are? Because, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I'm just so fascinated by that genealogy yes. stuff. Yeah. The bummer is, is that they said, well, the trip will no longer be to Europe. It will be in the United States. <laughs> so You're like, wah, wah. All right. I wanted my European trip. I wanted to go to some hamlet in some country that, you know, and they said that it probably wouldn't be the Italian side of the family. So I was really curious to like follow my ancestry, you know, down my mom's side of the path. But, um, but that's probably what we'll still do in the yeah. US. But, oh, yeah. that's thrilling. All right. Before I let you go to your beautiful family and your dog and and let you enjoy your Monday, um, can you just share a little known fact about you? Um, I used to be able to take my hands locked behind my head, like behind my back and raise them all the way over 
to the front of myself without unlocking my hands. So I could like double joint, I could un sort of disconnect my shoulders and, and flip them over to the front side and then back. But then I stopped being able to do that when I was about 12. <laughs> All right. Well, someday, someday. All right. Here's Sorvino. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on the show today. You are um, a beacon and I thank you deeply. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Here are a few little known facts that listeners shared with me about themselves. Becky Ho 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 says, little known fact about me is I used to be a nutritionist before I became an actor. And Becky, I'm just laughing because your Instagram handle is Becky Ho Ho Ho. And I don't know why, but in a play I did recently, uh, The Perplexed by Richard Greenberg, at one point my character, in response to someone else suggesting um, I have a better time at a party that I'm at, I respond to her by going, ho, ho, ho. And I swear, for some reason, it was the hardest line reading uh, I've ever had, trying to figure out how to say it. Okay, so that's what I think of when I see your handle. And Samantha G. Harris shares little known fact about me. I can read upside down. Um, That is very cool. I wonder if I can still do that now that I need reading glasses. Um, I love you all. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.